Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hello and welcome to the Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. This week we're excited to have the author of Trump Nation and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tim O'Brien to discuss the last gasp of the Trump presidency. No one knows this guy better than Tim. We also have John Barry, author of The Great Influenza of 1918 to tackle the state of the current pandemic. He laid out for us in March, James, exactly what was going to happen if only Donald Trump had listened to him or anybody else. And, and the two of us are going to fill you in on everything else from Biden to Georgia. But remember, we take your questions each episode. So write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to add Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. We love those questions. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp and Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show note. And thanks for supporting our sponsors. It really helps to make this podcast happen. And tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, how you doing? You know, Al, just okay. Uh, and some of it is related to the pandemic and my family being kind of away from each other but so some of it is just what i see coming out of washington and i i i don't i'm not that impressed so far i'll be honest with you i mean i'm impressed with some obviously some of the people that have been appointed have been very impressive but i i, I see the messaging is not great you know i i would give i would divide this biden uh presidency to be uh, into the two 20-day periods, the first 20 days and the second 20 days. First 20 days, I give them an A. Great appointments, right tone, everything else. These last 20 days or 19, uh, I'd give them at best a C. Uh, I think the messaging has been off, as you said, and, I, and I'll tell you why. They keep saying we're appointing the most diverse cabinet in history. We're appointing people who represent the face of America. We have people. That's fine. That's desirable. That's what they ought to be doing. But they named someone like Cecilia Rouse as the head of the CEA. Most important thing about Dr. Rouse is that she is the most qualified economist for that. She is really she's got sterling credentials. Same with Janet Yellen. And then the second most important thing is that she is the first African-American to head that. They reverse the order sometimes. And I also will say in the second 20 days, again, overall high grades and appointments, they made some mistakes. Marsha Fudge to HUD, which they're planning to do, is a mistake on two grounds. James, Nancy Pelosi has about a five-vote margin in the House. If Marsha Fudge and Cedric Richmond leave for 60 days, she'll have a three-vote margin in the House. I'm sorry. They can't afford that. There will be important matters that will come up in February and March. I think it's a mistake to name someone from the House. Moreover, Marsha Fudge is not especially qualified. She has not been a very impressive member. And I know there's been pressure from the Black Caucus. If they felt a need, 
that they had to appoint an African-American to HUD and, and they wanted someone. Karen Bass in California is incredibly qualified, former Speaker of the Assembly. I don't know what has gotten into them. Uh, people who have made a whole series of really good appointments now are coming up with, uh, you know, a couple, a couple questionable ones. Well, it, I don't know. Potentially, uh, someone who's the, like the EPA administrator in California was being considered for EPA. Everybody, she called a queen of green, all right? And some of the progressive groups are saying, well, no, no, because she negotiated a cap and trade in California and that allows. I don't know how to tell progressive groups this, so I'll just try to say as blunt as I can. If we win, if we win, which is problematic but possible, the two seats in Georgia, the Democratic Party can be no more progressive than Joe Manchin. Does the, any of these people know how to count? We're working with a four or five point person majority in the House, and, and they're demanding systemic structural we didn't do very well. The the only entity, only entity that is, you know, less popular than the Democrats is Donald Trump. I, it, it is something that we're doing that it, it, it's we're not getting across. I mean, like I, I on my soapbox, we, we, the minimum wage passed by sixty percent in Florida, and we we get forty seven. Why are we not? Immediately talking about raising the minimum wage. Oh, no, different ways to expand this health care. People are hurting out there. I mean, they're hurting bad. And, you know, what I hear is, well, no, you need somebody here. You know, the climate is one of the climate inequality dwarf every other issue. And I don't know. It just, it, it just, it's discouraging. I'll be honest with you. It just is. Well, uh, I agree, but maybe it's a hiccup. I mean, I think they're trying to do an awful lot under a lot of pressure with no cooperation right. from the outgoing administration in the middle right. of a crisis. They, uh, so, so let's, they, they, you know, they're putting things together quickly. And I agree. There have been clearly some stumbles. Uh, but as I say, let's hope it's a hiccup and they can recover right. from it. It could be. And, and I wish some Democrats would say, Look, Joe Biden did better than any of us. He's the experienced guy. He's a great guy. He's he's a very inclusive person. You know, Ron Klain is a talented guy. Let's cut let's cut him a little slack. All right? Let's let, let let's cut him a little slack. And I I, I think that probably be called for now. It's you in everybody is trying to you know, I'm going to stop disappointment at that appointment. And you know, I, uh, the, the 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 defense department thing is there's a lot of pe people that are coming out against the idea of having another military man, Secretary of Defense. I, I don't know if they ran that trap before they did this. I have no well, idea. That's a really critical question because by all accounts, uh, uh, this general is a very, very competent, qualified, very good guy. My, I mean, my wife actually knows him and uh, uh, is very, very high on him. That's not the issue. The issue is that it, there's only been a waiver twice for a right. military person to be. And one time was for Jim Mattis four years ago. Democrats, most of them went along with it for a very simple reason. Anybody who brings sanity to checkmate right. Donald Trump ought to be confirmed. We need it. We're in a crisis in that sense. And the other was for George Catlin Marshall, who was, you know, the great hero of World War II. And this guy may be a perfect, this guy may be, well, both, 
Uh, this yeah. guy may be a perfect pick, but did they run all those traps? And I don't know the answer to that. And again, well, it's uh, I, I hope somebody asked because Senator Jack Reed, D. Rhode Island, I think is the ranking member of Armed Forces, a West Point graduate, a great guy. You know, eighty-second Airborne like Division. This. Yeah, he does yeah. not like this. Uh, you know, uh, I saw Warren came out against it today, and maybe it was Chris Murphy too. I mean, they're going to have to get Republican votes to get to get Gen- General Austin uh, confirmed. And it's not a, it's not about him, all right? No, it's not. It's no, not. There's nobody says like, oh no, this guy's you know, and he, he he's not a you know he's not a, a he, he's he's like the the woman economist from, from from Princeton. But I I it just wonder if they're playing basic politics one oh one. Like, are they bringing, because they're, they're going to need everything from the Congress. I was watching this morning with Doris Kearns Goodwin about how hard Johnson worked the Congress right after Kennedy was shot. But have people over there. And, I, I, and Biden knows this. I, I mean, he, it's his whole life. But yeah. something is something is missing here. And I, maybe I, hey, look, it might, it, let, let's hope and pray it's a hiccup, Albert. Well, I do, too. And, of course, you know, as as traumatic as those times were, uh, Johnson had huge Democratic majorities, which uh, uh, Joe Biden, unfortunately, uh, is not going to have. Let's 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 go to let's go to that question. And Georgia is on our mind, uh, James. Um, I think I probably am a little more. I think we're both probably at 50 50 and I'm a little more pessimistic than you are. Well. I don't know. I'm not. I'm neither pessimistic or optimistic. But I do know that I, I, I see so many polls. They're all the same. The absentee ballot requests are, are very favorable for Democrats. How much does that mean, or how many of them are returning the ballots? I don't know. But the the requests are from every way you look at them. The, the percent of African Americans that are requested have gone from twenty eight to thirty one. The, the chronic voters on each side have gone, many more Democratic chronic voters have requested absentee ballots than Republican chronic voters. I, does that mean that we're more enthusiastic? I don't know. It, it, it may mean nothing, but it, I don't think it means anything bad. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, uh, watched, I watched that debate, that Leffler Warnock debate last Sunday night. No one could watch that without knowing that Warnock was a far more capable, knowledgeable, qualified candidate. She was the single most robotic candidate I have ever seen in a debate. She had planned, programmed answers. If someone had said a nuclear bomb has just been dropped on Buckhead, she would have said, and I'm running against the radical liberal Reverend Warnock, and I grew up on a – it was unbelievable. I, can, I, I cannot tell you how unimpressive she was and to most people who watched it. However, Warnock, who, who, was, who, who was a smart guy and showed it, just passed up opportunity after opportunity. I'll give you one example. She went and back in January and February when she was getting briefed on – COVID. She had, she's a, a, a billionaire, at least a multi, multi-millionaire. Uh, and she traded a bunch of stocks, which she made some money on, which were helped by uh, uh, their role in the pandemic. Now, she claims that uh, this was coincidental, but it really looks sleazy. She was asked by the moderators, should senators be banned from selling stocks? Which, of course, they should be. 
put it in a mutual fund. And she gave, she evaded the answer. She went back to her program answer. And Warnock, rather than saying, hey, may I please uh, answer that? And he could have easily said, of course, senators should be banned from selling stocks. We go to Washington to help people from Georgia not to pat our pockets. I thought he was an impressive guy, but boy, did he lose a lot of opportunities there, James. It's like the only analogy I can give you is there's this picture that just keeps throwing fat down the line, you know, 74 mile an hour balls at you. At you. And yeah, you, 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 you might have gone one for four. You could have gone four for four, but you probably went yeah. one for five. I mean, she's. I mean, she, he didn't get hurt because she was so bad that anybody right. that watched that, that, that what you came out was, was just how robotic he was. I mean, he could have said, you know, I'm not a robot, by the way. Just, or he could have, she wouldn't defend Brian Kemp. He could say, this man appointed you. Right. Yeah. And he could, he yeah. had an opportunity to split the, the Republican Party, which, which they need to do. This man appointed you. You can't say anything nice about him. I mean, wow. I mean, there were, it was so many missed opportunities. But right. the, 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 the biggest story coming out of it was how inept and robotic that she was. Oh, she went, the, the vote in Georgia has been certified now multiple occasions. The Secretary of State, the governor, there is no one down there who is honest that doesn't acknowledge that, I'm sorry, this election is over. Joe Biden won Georgia and we have two Senate runoffs. Kelly Leffler won't acknowledge that. She won't acknowledge it. She's she's uh, playing her programmed answers and saying, well, every vote ought to be counted. Yeah, of course every vote ought to be counted. Senator, they have been. They have been. The outcome's there. You know, accept it. You know, I, 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 God, what an unimpressive candidate. Oh, God. I mean, I think her campaign was probably glad that she just got through the hour and a half. Oh. I mean, can you, you, know, ima- I mean, can, that- can you imagine having to brief her? Uh, oh, my God. Huh? What a nightmare. And of course, the other senator, David Perdue, just ducked it all together. He wouldn't debate John Ossoff uh, uh, because he has even greater ethical problems than Kelly Loeffler. Yeah, Ossoff, Ossoff kicked his ass in the first round. Yeah. And uh, this guy, this guy, Perdue, has engaged in more stock trading than any other senator by a lot. Why are they doing that? I mean, they're they're rich because they, they, they get away with it. That's they exactly they, 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 Trump, they yeah. get away with it. They see what Trump does. They don't care what they, they get away with it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I I don't you know mean to change the the, the topic of conversation here too fast, but everybody, a, a great friend of this show and been on here is Jim Fallis. Whatever you do, please read his piece in the Atlantic. Yep. Yep. Right. And yep. It, it's it's why we cannot that people can't have this sense of, they have the sense in this country, in the Republican Party in particular, that they can get away with anything they want because and they have. They have. Yes. I mean, not not just Trump, not just Purdue. Mitch McConnell. When you look back at Merrick Garland and um, and Justice Barrett, that really was reprehensible. He showed contempt. For the institution, any kind of due process, he paid no penalty whatsoever, right. none. Right. I, I, um, so that's why I'm down, and, and I, I don't know, you know, I, they may just go through and just get away with all of this, and that is the, the, the country. The country's in trouble. 
and, and I mean, somebody, somewhere, somehow, and please, I hope, I mean, I, I know I know that President-elect Biden wants to. Man, people ought to pray for him every minute of every day. Every minute of every day. Amen. They, and, and we don't, you know, and remember, we got a five, maybe four-person majority in the House, and under the optimal conditions, which are, we would have, a, a tiebreaker in the Senate. And, and I know it's the nature of the activists to push for change, but you know, I think Frederick Douglass would have a pretty good record as being an activist. And he famously said the Republican Party was the ship. Everything else was the sea. If you didn't win elections, it didn't matter. You know, Martin Luther King would spend a lot of time with Lyndon Johnson, all right? He was clearly an activist, but but they understand. And just these calls that I hear for implementing this and that and Biden stepping up, we did not do very well in the election. No, and Joe Biden, when it comes to governing, is going to have to move to the center or even to the center right on some issues, not for ideological reasons, but for reasons of arithmetic. There are not the votes there to do what, not only what the activists would like to do, but to what a lot of what Biden would like to do. And wow. the question now is, can you get something done that's better than nothing? Uh, right. You know, they, they, let's hope they learn. I'm not encouraged. Yeah, we could, you know what, you and I are feeding off each other, but I got to tell you, I'm not going to tell you, I talked to different people and everybody's kind of coming to the same conclusion <laughs> well as i say my hope is it's a shakedown time there's a lot of pressure on them i mean you just think of these people coming in with with an outgoing administration that that actually probably makes herbert hoover look cooperative uh they are they're doing everything to impede oh. uh they have to do things quickly name people quickly so i have a little bit of sympathy for them but it's been okay. a rough couple of weeks i got a i got a ton of sympathy for them I got nothing yeah. but sympathy, but then my sympathy doesn't do any good. Right, right, right. I, I am very. I'm because everybody. If, if you're a religious person, never pray. If you're not, write a something to a Wiccan or something. I don't know whatever you think is a power, but this guy's. I mean, we're in trouble. I mean, real trouble. Not to mention what they're doing over at the Pentagon. I mean, God Almighty, what have they done to the intelligence services? What all of it? What's going to happen there? I have no idea. Well, but, you know, let's get, I mean, Trump has made some great appointments in the last couple of days. Kellyanne Conway is now on uh, the board. Air Force the Academy. Air, Air Force Academy. And the wife of your your guy down there, what's his name? Foster Freeze yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, who is to the right of Genghis Khan. His wife is on the Kennedy Center uh, right. board. I'm sure she knows a great deal about uh, what the Kennedy Center does. So, uh you know, he's still somebody doing else damage. Somebody else National Library board. They're going to do as much time before I'm going to talk Oh, 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 Matt Slaps. Yeah. <laughs> he's on the National Matt Library Slapp. board. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I know he's just, yeah, I know it. I know it. The library don't, doesn't. Good guy and totally unqualified. I'm not sure he reads books, much less ones ones in a yeah. library board. Yeah. But, I, I, uh, it, it, I mean, uh, it's, it's just. Awful. It, it, and it's going to get, that's why I'm anxious to talk to Tim O'Brien because he might have somebody. I, I, don't, I don't think he's started yet. I think he's just getting warmed up. 
Oh, James. Oh, I, I don't mean, know what he could do. Look, remember he, this. Remember this. Legitimate on the show. Legitimate, smart, patriotic people are genuinely afraid that he's given away or will give away the nation's secrets. Right. That is not an overstatement. Right. That is not an overstatement. Right. And there have been multiple stories of people on the record, substantial people, saying that is a grave concern. Republicans. Yes. Yes. So it yes. is. Uh, no, yes. this it, is. Uh, Shane Harris, please, whatever you do, go back and look at the, the inventory of our podcast and re listen to the podcast we had with Shane Harris. There is there are people I think this guy could be a traitor. You you know how if if you don't feel good about yourself, you're not going to feel good about anything else. And you, given the times we end, I, I know people struggle, and you know I know that people are listening to the show and say, like, I don't know what to do. What's the option? I can't. I don't want to go and go to a psychiatrist's office. I, I don't know if what I don't know what to do. But maybe there's something that's out there. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that there is something out there that we can talk about that can actually help people during this pandemic and beyond this pandemic. Yeah, no, there really is. BetterHelp is a worldwide professional counseling service. It's done securely online. People who need help don't want the whole world to know about it oftentimes. It has a broad range of expertise available that you might not find locally, and they're committed to great therapeutic matches so you can easily Change counselors until you find one that meets your needs. And, you know, James, this is, these are really difficult times. I mean, apart from the politics with the country so polarized, this, this, this pandemic has really changed people's lives. And a lot of people are struggling really, really uh, uh, to a terrible degree. And BetterHelp can get you communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor. Yeah, and it's, it's important for you to know this is not a crisis line, a self-help thing. It's not anything like this. This is something that you can get responses to issues that you're facing, and it, it, it can go on from there. Uh, because I'm telling you, mental health is always an issue beyond any of what anybody appreciates, and I suspect that now it's a, it's a greater issue than ever before. So it's important for our listeners and subscribers to know that there is something you can do that, that does not warrant any jeopardy to your physical well-being. Yeah, and best of all, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Recent reviewers are saying things to the service like, Payal offers great support. She is professional. Asks key questions and sends homework to work between sessions. I'm very grateful to have found her. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Visit BetterHelp.com slash War Room. That's all one word. That's BetterHelp.com slash War Room. I'm going to say that again. That's BetterHelp.com slash War Room. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash War Room or look for the link on show notes. Hey, James, the premier expert on Donald J. Trump and his character, or lack of the same, 
is Tim O'Brien, who years ago wrote a biography of the Donald, the Donald sued him. And this is going to sound familiar. The Donald was basically laughed out of court. Tim uh, used to be my colleague at Bloomberg. He's the senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion and knows everything Trump. Tim, thanks for joining us. And we'll start by saying- It's a, it's a pleasure. Oh, God, we're so fortunate to have you. No one's surprised that Trump is behaving the way he's behaving. That's what he's done all of his life. Uh, and uh, he can't acknowledge he's a loser. There are two theories of the case. One, that he's petrified of legal charges and an indictment after he leaves, and he's really trying to plea bargain. I'm not quite sure with whom. Or the second is that he's found a new money-making scam, and he's just enriching himself, which is maybe both could be true. Well, I think, and I think there's, there's a, you know, a universe of three factors here. You've got a man who's so deeply damaged and insecure uh, and was raised by a father who taught him the world was a very binary place of black and white winners and losers. And if you were ever in the loser camp, you shouldn't look in the mirror. And so acknowledging that he lost an election that he clearly got destroyed in is, is beyond him emotionally and psychologically. And I think we know that that's factor one. Yep. And then you've put your finger on the other two factors. He's staring down um, uh, a post-White House existence in which a lot of debt is going to come due on his highly leveraged uh, business portfolio that's heavily exposed to the pandemic. Hotels, urban real estate, travel and leisure. Uh, he also is staring down... Um, uh, legal legal nightmares, particularly, I think, the most acute one being the Manhattan District Attorney's uh, criminal investigation for accounting, tax, and campaign finance fraud. And, and I think those two things are an existential threat to him that he's worried about. And then, obviously, the thing he learned on the fly, I don't think it was premeditated, but he's discovered since Election Day that he can turn... Um, uh, these lunatic and damaging claims of election fraud into his latest money-making grift, um, raising now over $200 million from, I presume, largely MAGA people who are willing to fork their money over to someone uh, to keep him alive when he certainly knows the whole thing's a fraud. Tim, you wrote uh, that he doesn't really believe he won this election. This is all part of, you know, another Trump scam. I mean, you 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 believe that, that he does not think he won the election. I, I do believe that. And, and I also believe that on his tombstone, he won't have his name. He'll just have I won engraved yeah. on it. Yeah. And, and everything that he does is directed towards going underground at the end of his life with, with this idea that he never lost anything. Right. He's never accepted any defeat, bankruptcies, or when he lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz in 2016, he said it was stolen. So it's a familiar scene. You mentioned the Manhattan DA. Uh, you know something about that case. You read a lot. You know about Trump. Uh, how serious do you think it is? It's very serious. It's uh, it, it may be the most serious of anything that's been teed up against him. The, the New York State Attorney General, Tish James, is also looking uh, into similar issues. But th those are civil charges. And, and I don't think I think Trump may walk from those with a serious fine. Um, the stuff that Cy Vance is doing uh, will probably splinter the loyalties 
among people in the Trump organization who are going to be endangered themselves if they stay loyal to Donald, um, particularly his lifelong CFO, Alan Weisselberg, and other executives there. So there's a chance that people in the Trump organization start backstabbing one another. Um, Vance has a lot of leeway to go through Trump's banking records and tax records. No other investigators really done that. Mueller didn't do it. And, and, and there are skeletons in the closet wouldn't even begin to describe it. It's, it's this Pandora's box of legal and financial problems with Trump once you get into his taxes. And I think, um, and, and it'll come down to, I, I think, how willing Cy Vance is to test the notion of, um, of trying to incarcerate a former president. I am not, I, I don't see him going there, but we'll see. He has been, Vance historically gave the Trump family passes on previous in investigations he ran that intersected with their business dealings. So it's not clear how um, aggressive he'll be in this matter. If he is, however, and if Trump gets a criminal charge against him and he's found guilty of a criminal charge, uh, that blows up his ability to run again in 2024. Boy, it sure does. Um, and, I think, and, and, yeah, and I would think yeah. that there must be pressure on Vance not to blow out a case, as you said, as he did in the past. And, you know, we talked to Andrew Wiseman a few weeks ago, who, who says the key here is getting some people to flip. And he does not command yeah. loyalty. And uh, if you talk to someone in that Trump organization, and I'm asking this, Tim, because you know uh, these people, and they have a choice between turning on the Donald or going and spending two years in a New York penitentiary, that shouldn't be a hard decision. I don't think it will be. And again, it, you know, there, there's people there. I, I've mentioned Alan Weisselberg before. He's the Trump organization's chief financial officer. He was Fred Trump's accountant. That's how Donald met Alan Weisselberg. They're the same age. He's been working with the Trump organization since the 1970s. He knows where all the bodies are buried. And I think had, had Robert Mueller been more um, attuned to the importance of pursuing the financial and, and, and money trail with Trump, um, some of that might have been tested earlier. And unfortunately, it wasn't. So we'll see what Vance will do. James. All right. So, so Tim, about a month ago or something, a, a journalist by the name of Shane Harris uh, did a story in the Washington Post. We actually had him on the show. That name that people said by attribution that they were afraid that Trump would sell the country's secrets after he left office. Yeah. And, and, and there were like six people. And there was, there was a story, the same thing appeared somewhere else. You know him as well as anybody. It, would he be capable of doing that? Is that something that we should like, it, it should the CIA or the FBI like tap his phone? I mean, if you if you get I think he cause, needs to be yes. Right. I mean, I don't know. You know the legalities around tapping. You know the phones and communications of a former president are 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 new territory. I, right. I would think, but of course he's tested all these boundaries. Donald Trump would would sell out anyone and anything to make a buck. This isn't complex. Uh, anyone who's worked with him knows that if you walked into his office with a bag of cash and dropped it on his desk, he wouldn't ask where you were from or what you were about. He would take the money and run. 
And of course, I think he's thought from the very minute he entered the Oval Office, how do I monetize the presidency? And I think you, all of the, you know, the confusion about, well, why is he courting Vladimir Putin so closely? Uh, you know, I don't think there's a mystery there. I think he, he has always seen Putin as a potential source of money. He had been involved in Russia with Russian investors prior to becoming president. Uh, I think he he saw a lot of his foreign policy policy making as avenues towards relationships he might have after he left the White House that would line would feather his nest. So I think there's a real issue here around national security and classified information. We know that members of the intelligence community have raised doubts about whether or not he should continue to have access to briefings, classified briefings. Uh, I think personally, having watched this guy roll for, for as long as I have, that it, it, it wouldn't serve the public interest or national, national security well to keep Donald Trump looped in on classified information because we already have seen during the presidency that he won't keep his mouth shut about it, and he certainly won't after he leaves. Yeah, I, I don't think Biden has any intention. Of, of giving him any briefings after he leaves. It's just, it's what he knows now and what he's capable of doing is, I mean, it's utterly frightening. And, and again, people like you and, and pe- people like on Republicans on the record. And if I'm a federal judge, and I don't, you know, again, I don't know the legality of an ex-president, but, but, but he would certainly be ripe for a fistful warrant to say that there's sufficient well, reason to believe that he would do something like this. A hundred percent. So what now that, you know, it's, it's evident that he's going, do, do, do you, do you buy the fact that he's going to go to Mar-a-Lago and just do everything he can to make as much money as he can as fast as he can? Or you think there's something else? Uh, he, after he leaves the Oval Office or between now and January 20th? Well, let's, let's take, what do you think he's capable of doing between now and January 20th, right? And what do you think he's going to do after January 20th? Let's make a two-part question, because right, there's two different, two different time frames. The implications are entirely different. Um, I've sort of wondered, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if he goes down to Mar-a-Lago for the Christmas holidays and doesn't come back to Washington. I don't think he's going to be present at Biden's inauguration. I don't think he's going to want to greet Jill and Joe Biden when they come to the White House uh, in the same way that the Obamas greeted Donald and Melania when they came to the White House. Uh, I think he feels humiliated. I think he's a sore loser and he's petulant. And I think he'll do everything he can to either distract from Biden and and won't care a whit about you know, ceremony or or the transfer of power. And I think between now and then, and I've I've said this for a long time, I think he'd rather burn the house down than someone else get hold of it. I think we've been fortunate in the last few weeks that we've seen um the the court system thoroughly reject these clownish lawsuits that that Trump and Rudy and uh and and their cohorts have have brought. But they've also achieved, I think, what Trump wanted out of them, which was raise doubts about the election, and turn his defeat into a a money-making opportunity. So beyond January 20th, I think he'll try to either start or buy a media company. I think he'll look at Sinclair Broadcasting 
or One America News Network as um, as potential acquisitions, or he and Jared will start something from scratch. And he's a media addict. He won't be able to remain out of the spotlight on social and TV. I think he will continue to do um, rallies around the country. He enjoys those. He thrives on them. He can make money doing them. But I think long-term, the thing to remember about Donald Trump is how wildly inept and undisciplined and non-strategic he is as a man, politician, and a business person. If if he actually tries running a media company, maybe he'll leave it to Jared, but he won't have the kind of patience to make that a long-term success. I, I believe I could be proven wrong, but I, I think that will not end up being a successful venture. I do think he'll remain a kingmaker within the Republican Party for people who need to court, uh, you know, the 25 to 30 million voters within the GOP who are hard right MAGA Trump supporters. And he's going to have traction in the hearts and minds of those folks for quite some time. And, And it'll test whether or not the GOP can really renew itself, which I think it needs to do. Tim, uh, this is where you came in, but what's what's his real worth now? What kind of financial shape is he in? Um, I suspect, you know, he's got about a billion dollars in debt. <clears throat> Pardon me, against maybe say two and a half billion to $3 billion in assets. So in theory, if he if if he if he had to sell everything he had and pay down his debt, so you know he he may at the end of the day have a net worth of about a billion dollars, but that presumes all of the assets that he has had aren't going to continue to get crunched by the coronavirus pandemic. The the um, urban uh, commercial and residential skyscrapers he either has an interest in or owns outright have had their valuations hammered over the last year. Uh, The golf business, which is typical Trump, he got into it early on uh, at a time when when golf was booming. He made a good go of it early on. And then he thought he was Midas and he overextended himself. And now his his golf courses, his his trophy properties have been losing money for some time and nobody wants to buy them from him. And And the rest of what he does is he's essentially a human shingle. You know, he just markets his name onto anything people will plaster it on. And the Trump name now is a very different thing than it was before he went into the White House. Yeah, he's been hurt there. It's certainly not, uh, you know, high quality. I'm only I'm just surprised that he could be could have assets of two to two and a half. I remember in 2016, uh, you know, I saw your boss and my former boss, Mike Bloomberg, and somebody's (laughs) called Trump a billionaire. And Mike said, that's bullshit. He's not a billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I figure one billionaire knows better than I do. He's been fortunate. I think at the time that I covered him, he's certainly not worth $10 billion, which he he routinely says. And and at the time I was covering him, he said he was worth $6 billion at a time when I think he was worth less than a billion. Um, So he's, he's BSed about this. Forever, I think the issue that matters now is how tight is the financial noose around his neck, and will it cause him to, as James was wondering about earlier, sell sell out state secrets to feather his nest? And I think that's a real 
That's a national security issue. An indebted Donald Trump whose assets are under pressure and he needs to sell things because he's got a lot of short-term debt coming due is someone who's a threat to the national security of the United States. That's the very definition. Let me ask you a final question and turn it over to James. Future of Jared, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric. Uh, so I think Don Jr. has discovered that he's popular with red meat right-wingers, and um, he he is good at pandering to their emotions and, and bringing the fire. Um, he's not uh, particularly bright. I, I don't think any of the Trump children – and, and their father, including their father, are are, are particularly bright lights. Uh, you know, they're people who were born on third base and think they hit triples. And, um, you know, there's a great Howard Stern radio interview and TV interview with Don Jr., Ivanka, and Don, the, the pater familias, Donald Sr. And he asks them to do some basic multiplication problems, and they can't do it. And um, they've never been particularly astute. And But the one thing that separates the father from the children <clears throat> is he has this reptilian sensibility about the needs of people right in front of him. And, and he is such a pathologic liar who, who dissembles without regret. And it, and it makes him this kind of energizer bunny on the campaign trail. I don't think Don Jr. has those tools in his toolkit. But I would imagine he might try to run for governor of New York if I were to throw some bets down. Oh, I hope. I think Ivanka. <laughs> yeah, I think Ivanka's going to discover that when you strip away all of the PR apparatus around her and put her out into the wild, it's much harder being a politician than it is when you're protected by the White House. But I think she'll run again. Um, I think Eric Eric will just remain in the Trump family businesses. I think Jared will probably run a media company if Donald tries to set one up. I think they'll partner around that. But I think they're all going to try to remain forces in Republican politics. Well, Tim, somebody pointed out, it might have been you, that if he'd have taken his father's inheritance and put it in a stock S&P index fund, he'd be worth $25 billion today. I mean, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, this all guy, he had to do was sit on what he had. Yeah. I, I mean, he has lost... If you took the loss he's had over just an index fund, he cost himself a bucket load of money. I mean, he inherited a lot of money. Well, and you know, and anyone who ever worked for him, they can tick off times when people offered to buy properties from him at multiples of what they were worth at the time and certainly what they were worth later. And he just couldn't bear to part with them. He cares more about having his name on things and being discussed in the news than he does about making the math add up and actually growing his wealth or growing a business. He, well, um, you know what? His name, somebody uh, I was reading this morning, 100 years from now, he's going to have a bibliography the size of Lincoln's. He, he'll be discussed for a long time to come. I, I promise you that, uh, President Trump. The world is not going to forget you. They will be complete. They'll be the, the, the degree in Trump history at, at, at Yale or something like that. That this thing will be studied, written about. People will go back and reread your work and start from there. But he's not going to receive a lack of attention uh, going forward. He does not have to worry about that at all. We have to come to terms with what he reflects about the country. 
because mm-hmm. he didn't spring into the world uh, and get the traction he got simply because he was a wizard. You know, I think he's the outcome of decades of problems around income inequality, you know, centuries of problems around racism. And 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 the Republican Party essentially refashioning itself as a a safe harbor um, for affluent white people and working class white people who've been hoodwinked. And and I think that's a problem. So so please, if anything, the best explanation is in today's New York Times by the great Tom Etzel and just how social resentment is is understudied and we have done something and I'm I, you know that may not when I say we to educated coastal people I'm hard to fit in that category but just put me in there for a second because I, I, I did live on a coast for a while. If do something that just really irritates the hell out of people. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it it, it, it I think Tom's column is kind of onto something. And it looks like we continue to do that. And, you know, we have to sort of try to figure this out because this was a very, sans Biden, which is, okay, that was a big deal, but we didn't have a very good election at all. Right. And, and right. Th- th- there has to be some some appraisal and some reflection here. And I, I don't see that, I don't see that happening necessarily. Well, you, you know, Billy, I went, um, uh, Tim and James in, in 2016 and went back in 2018 at the suggestion of Paul Begala and Bob Casey, the senator, to a little town in Pennsylvania, Manassas. Used to be a Democratic stronghold, no longer is. Trump went there and campaigned there. And you know what it came down to for those people? And they are getting screwed. They really are. And they're getting screwed by this administration. They saw it as an us versus them. And he was us yeah. and you all were them. And that's total bullshit, but he plays it brilliantly. And Democrats too often, and the press too often, and the elites and the academics too often play into his hands. You know, I was at one point, I was in Kentucky, speaking to some folks in Kentucky, and they said, you know, who the, who are the two most popular politicians that ever campaigned in Appalachia? And we kicked some names around. And they said, Bobby Kennedy and Donald Trump. Yeah. And both were wealthy white guys. Uh, their politics were completely different, but they showed up and the folks there believed they were authentic and they felt that, that both of them cared about their problems with an added dose that they also don't believe that any politician's ever going to rescue them from anything. They become fatalists about it. So they're attracted to whoever will speak for them. Right. And 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 that's Trump in spades, not only there, but across the country. And it didn't begin with him. I mean, remember, you know, that the Teamsters endorsed Ronald Reagan. Right. Uh, Ronald Reagan and, 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 you know, and Lee Atwater with, with Bush really exploited the politics of, of social resentment. Well, and George Wallace before that. I mean, this is a, yes. you know, this is a long, yeah. a long sequel. Actually, it goes Barry back Goldwater. Joe, Joe McCarthy even. So we could, uh, you know, it's not new. But, you, you know, I give him credit for almost nothing. But he has, he has been uh, durable to our great regret. I'll tell you one thing. Donald Trump has been lousy for the country. Uh, he's been lousy for all three of us. But God, he has been great for your journalism, Tim O'Brien, because there's no one that knows him better 
And if anyone wants to know Donald Trump, there's some people you got to read. Tim O'Brien is in that top tier. We can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, my guess is that we're going to ask you again, and I hope you'll do it. And be safe and have a happy holiday, Tim. Yeah, man. Thank you both. I always love spending time with both of you. I, I, I love talking to you. God knows so much. Gee whiz. Hey, James, once again this week, lots of good questions. The only thing that really, really hurts me here is we can't get to them all, but we've got a bunch that we can get to. And let's start with Andy. And guess where Andy is from? New Orleans, Louisiana. And he oh, says, Cal, okay. he says now that the Trump is discussing camp, is discussing pardons for family members, you think Democrats should subpoena pardon family members and others like Michael Flynn to testify? Because once they're pardoned, uh, they have immunity from those crimes. Yeah, I, I, I think that that kind of stuff has to be, I'm, I'm certainly not against it, but it has to be part of a larger picture. And I don't think they should just go willy-nilly just subpoenaing people without some larger kind of purpose here. I agree. And and I, I would I would also uh, recommend Andy Reid to Jim Fowler's piece in Atlantic. Right. Uh, but look, look at the uh, Attorney General of Texas, who's using Texas taxpayer money to try to bribe himself into getting a pardon. Well, this is a completely stupid, a lawsuit with no merit. The, the Attorney General of Texas is trying to get the courts to overturn the election in Pennsylvania and Arizona or Michigan or whatever. And he's just doing that because he's under indictment and he wants a pardon. And he's using well, Texas taxpayer money for it. Well, he's not only under indictment, the poor fellow, James, but he had all of his top or most of his top aides resign because they say he's bribing people. That's the top aides to the attorney general of the state of Texas is being accused by his own lieutenants of trying to offer bribes. I mean, got it. You know, it doesn't get much worse than that. No, wow. and, and there hadn't been a Democrat in the Texas Attorney General's office since 1994. Jim, Jim, I mean, these are all hardcore right. Republicans. This guy right. is like, he's trying to bribe his way into a pardon by filing this suit to get Trump to pardon him. I'm, I'm sure Trump will pardon him. Oh, sure. Listen, we did New Orleans. Now we have a question from Newtown Township, Pennsylvania. From Anikath, I know Pennsylvania a little bit, having grown up there. She said, I heard that John Fetterman and Chrissy Houlihan are the main contenders on the Democratic side for the seat that Pat Toomey, a Republican, is vacating in 2022. Which one do you see as the better candidate? First of all, Pennsylvania is a must win Senate race in 2022, as are uh, Wisconsin and North Carolina. I don't know John Fetterman, but he has campaigned as a Democratic Socialist. In the past, that worries me. I mean, that really does worry me. I don't think that's going to fly. Chrissy Houlihan, uh, who uh, represents the area I grew up in, Chester County, used to be Rock Rib Republican. Now it went for Biden. She's a, a, a MIT Stanford graduate. She's an Air Force veteran. Uh, her, uh, you know, one of her parents was a Holocaust survivor. She really is uh, a good candidate. But from the western part of the state, Connor Lamb. Uh, also would be a strong candidate. Either one, I think, uh, Anika would be stronger than John Fetterman. I, I concur. Yeah. I, I concur. And I, I, I think you're going to, you know, and what scares you is that both of them get in or, some, or you have some similar thing where you get the wrong person out of the primary. Right, right. And I, I mean, look, the country rendered a verdict on socialism. 
All right, they just did. They aren't <laughs> it, for it. It wasn't very pretty. Right. So they didn't go for it. And, and, you know, the only Democrat that really did well was Joe Biden. Well, we're keeping with the home states, and I think your wife is from Illinois, correct, James? She is. She is. So we have, we have Jim from Riverside, Illinois, and he says it's a question that's likely to cause a James rant. And he says, okay. could you discuss the concept of a Trump presidential library? I'm not ranting, I'm laughing. Personally, I see a cross between Disneyland and Mar-a-Lago with high entrance fees and a fully outfitted MAGA gift shop. Well, first of all, maybe they get Matt slapped to running. What do you know? If there is a Trump presidential library, what you know is it's going to be a giant scam. Yeah. Right. That his whole staying in the race, he's raised over two hundred million dollars, seventy five percent of which he gets. Right. But some, you know, I mean, everything that they're going to do, everything that he does, at the bottom of the core, is a money making scam. So that that presidential library, I guarantee you, it, it, he is going to profit enormously. If you know, if they do that, because yeah, it's just another way for them to raise money. Right. And if, anyone asks, if anyone says, why is he doing it? There's a simple answer. Habit. That's what he does. We got Terry said, from. It, go ahead. No, no, I know. I'm just like it. When you think of anything that he does, think of where the, where, where the money is. What's the profit motive? Yeah. That, that, then that, that would be what it is. There'd be no buy a book for anything in the world. We have Terry from Palmetto, Florida, talking about the bipartisan package that's uh, hanging around the Senate now. McConnell is blocking and put forth his own, his own excuse. It's the only one the president might sign. You know, let me tell you two things about this. Number one, you know, we need some kind of relief package now. Number two, Mitch McConnell is only interested in one thing, his own power, and he'll try to protect his incumbents. He does not care what it does for the country. But three, this is a, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I agree with Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders. I can't believe I'm saying that, who together have said this package ought to include some kind of a payment to lower income Americans, like the $1,200 or $2,400 uh, that was given out. These people are hurting. They are suffering. Oh. And those kind of cash payments are, I mean, you know, $600 or $1,200 for someone who can't feed their kids really matters. Oh, I, it's so, it's horrific. And they got to get money to these people and they got to get it like now. The other right. thing is they, they, they got to get money to these small businesses. Right. I mean, they're just, they're, they're just going out of business left and right. I mean, oh. they, I mean, they, 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 I mean it, 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 and I mean, just a lot. I mean, the hell with it. Crank up the printing press, send checks. Yeah. I, I, yeah. They have no other choice. I don't, I don't know what, and if Josh Howley is for it, I mean, I, I Obviously, don't think Josh Howley is a, a demagogue, but it doesn't matter. Good. I, I, I agree with him. Right, right. He and Bernie Sanders and it's, it's together. Not just, right. It's, everybody is hurt. Right. Everybody. No. Right. I, I mean, they got to do something now. He, absolutely. And then they got to do something again in January. This, yeah, is a down, yeah. this is a down payment, but it's a critical down payment for people who are really in pain. We have, you know, we have wonderful listeners. I don't know how many, but I know they are a high quality in Australia. And Michael from Melbourne has a good question. He said, what should the slogan be for Democrats when discussing issues like police reform or increased funding for mental health and better police training and Black Lives Matter? 
they got they got really murdered on the issue of defund the police. What should they be saying? What should the slogan, if you will, or message be? Well, first of all, it did in just in, in Georgia. The things that unite people along, along, all right. The minimum wage, all right. Talk about that. Expanding health care. Talk about that, all right. Talk about really doing something about prescription drug costs, all right. Talk about how you come back after the pandemic. I mean, they are, you know, and we'll see who the attorney general is. You know, there's a whole division there that that deals with police. And like we were part of a consent decree in New Orleans. There's all kinds of things that you could do. And I agree with President Obama. There has to be a way that this country at this point in its history is sufficiently advanced that we can have effective, law-abiding, humane policing. And that, you know, the guy that we had from Pitt Law School, uh, Professor Harris. Right. 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 It pointed out places like Camden, New Jersey, Los Angeles, where they have been made real progress. And what people don't want to do, clearly, is throw the towel in on the idea of policing. But what they are very open to is, you know, more clearly defining the role of the police. And I, I, I totally seems to me to be a, a, a pretty good start is, you know, these domestic disputes would probably kill more policemen than anything else. Uh, you know, a lot of time, maybe they could have an alternative social workers go in and try to deal with that. I, I don't well, know. I, I, I agree. I think Michael was asking for a slogan. It is reform the police. So you reward the vast, vast majority of good cops by weeding out the bad cops. Uh, that's, that's not defund the police. Cause you can't want to do that. The people who would be most hurt by defunding the police would be the poor people, uh, who are most victimized by crime. Um, James, we have Sarasota, Florida, uh, Greg is down there and he says, I've been very impressed with Ron Klain over the past several years on television. He's good. Would you put him in the James Baker category in terms of the role he'll play for Joe Biden? I'm a very big Ron Klain fan, but, you know, there's 40 days before he gets to play that role of Jim Baker. So let's give him some time. I mean, Jim Baker wasn't Jim Baker on day one. Uh, So let's see what happens. But Ron Klain is a very bright, uh, able fellow. I I agree. You know him better than I do. I know him pretty well. I I, I don't know of anybody that does not think that Ron is not very bright, very able. He's just got a really big, difficult job. And I, I wish that a lot of people would, you know, cut he and a little slack here and let him try to put this thing together. Right, right. I, yeah, totally. Um, there's Sydney in Birmingham, Alabama, says, I got a question, James, that, that Google hadn't been able to satisfy. Shouldn't presidents of the United States, candidates for president, be able to pass the same security clearances of the FBI and CIA that others do? Y- you know, I don't know. I, I, I would, I, I would kind of ask you about that because, uh, I mean, you, you, you always want to say that they run on it and that, you know, their background can be investigated and that, that there are all kinds of ways that you can vet a presidential candidate that you couldn't, you know, vet the deputy secretary of defense. And you would be asking the FBI if they came back and they said somebody didn't pass it, they would be in a very difficult position. Of course, Trump couldn't pass. He couldn't pass gas, much less a security clearance. 
he would, he well, would be Rudy. Rudy could help him on that. Rudy could. Rudy couldn't pass anything. He couldn't. Except, he couldn't have a, except he gas. Could be a, he couldn't be a janitor. No, he could. He could pass gas. Woo-hoo. I didn't realize that he actually did fart before the committee. I, I really did, and I thought it was like Saturday Night Live thing. And somebody said, "No, he really did." Now, if you Google Rudy fart, it'll come right up. See, I, I mean, you saw, you saw the members recoiling anyway. Right? <laughs> That was like, that skit was like, you knew when that woman testified that that was going to be it. It was better than I I, I was waiting for. It It was better than expected. You know, it really, really was. Uh, Look, I I understand Sidney's point. I worry a little bit about it. Uh, Obviously, uh, Trump couldn't have passed it. But I, you know, I don't want some politically directed FBI person to bring up issues that it should be, but I don't know that we can come up. I don't think right. we can it, it, it's, it's one of these things that, that he's a smart guy. It sounds like a great idea. It might not be as good on second look as it sounds like. That, that would be I agree. Our final question, and we have about 20 on the cutting room floor, all of which are very good, so please keep them coming, is from uh, Angela. In California, she said, as a, as a former Republican, I really liked Pete Buttigieg. Uh, do you think there should be a place for him in the administration, and what might that be? There are reports out they are considering him for ambassador to China. I think Pete Buttigieg is so capable, and you know he was a guest, one of our first guests, James, a long time ago. Sure was. This is really an impressive guy. He communicates maybe better than anyone else in Biden land. So I would not. I think he would be good in China because he is so smart and sensitive. But I think he'd be good in a whole lot of other posts too. Yeah, I, I, I echo everything you say. He is really good on his feet. Maybe the best of, of any of them. Right. right? And, and, and I mean, he's fearless. He goes on Fox. He's a communicator. He's really, really smart. And they make him ambassador to China. He, he'll learn the Chinese language. Right? Well, he, he already I mean, speaks about eleven, doesn't he? I mean, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't know how many. I mean, I mean the guys, you, your, your your judgment in people is very good, Angela, because he is a really bright, really bright guy, and I think he has a lot to offer uh, President Biden. And anyway, well, pl- please keep those uh, those emails, uh, letters coming. We really love these questions. We learn a lot from them. So thanks a lot. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Magic Spoon. My grandson is still into the blueberry, James. He likes the others, but you can't get him off blueberry. You know, I have, I've had an epiphany about this. It's not, I don't use it, I use a cereal, some, but what is good is I just put it in a mug. And when I'm surfing the internet, I'm talking, you know, on, on the phone. It's a great snack stuff, and it, it, uh, unlike other things, you, you can feel good about it because of the, the nutritional content of this stuff is, like, off the charts. But it, 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 it's very good just dry. You know, it's, it's good with milk, and you can, you know, put some, you know, blueberries on top of the blueberry cereal, but I, I, find, I find it has utility all day long. Well, it's a really delicious— do. In a way that cornflakes doesn't. Yeah, it is delicious. Zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving. Uh, cocoa, f- uh, fruity, frosted, blueberry flavors. You stay healthy, enjoy your breakfast. My son swears there is a peanut butter flavor, which I have not seen or, or tasted yet. But if he does, I'm going to be doing a lot of what you're doing, James. While I'm noodling, I'm going to be uh, eating Just, that peanut butter. Yeah, I eat them like I eat peanuts. Just pop, yeah. You know? 
Yeah. It's it's good stuff. You go to magicspoon.com slash war room to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code war room. That's one word at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a hundred percent happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, I can't imagine you won't, but if you don't, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. Magicspoon.com slash warroom and the code is warroom for free shipping and look for the link in our show notes. James, we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. James, as you know, because he's a good friend of yours, John Barry, a prolific author with a great range, and one of his seminal works was on the influenza 1918. That should have been a roadmap for this year. Unfortunately, it was not. John, we thank you for being with us. Uh, again, you were with us back in March. We're now approaching 300,000 deaths in America. If Trump had followed what you wrote in 2004 and told us back in March, how much of this could have been avoided? Well, you can't really put a number on it, but uh, I certainly, I think a majority of the deaths could have been avoided. You know, there are some countries that have done an incredibly good job, and right. uh, including Australia, which culturally is quite similar to the United States. Canada, Germany. Uh, yeah. You know, there well, are, practically yeah. everybody's done better than the United States, but uh hmm. You know, Australia's numbers are, you know, very, very, I mean, a tiny handful of cases uh, right now, for example, while much of the rest of the world, inclu- including Europe, is has seen a surge. Uh, what, John, one thing that you wrote and said uh, after your book and as this began, that a key to this is public trust. That, you know, the public, you have to tell the public what's happening and they, you have to have credibility. I mean, that is the very antithesis of what happened. Uh, Trump admitted to Bob Woodward back in February he was lying because he didn't trust the American people to handle the truth. Apart from all the other errors, that was really kind of a central sin here, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, not telling the truth. I, I, that was the number one lesson from 1918 tell the truth. Right. Uh, and that lesson has been confirmed in the experience of 2020, uh, not only here, but around the world. Um, it's, it's, it's so, horrifying. Yeah. It, just one more you know, we're all very hopeful, uh, about the vaccines. It looks very, very promising, but John, it looks also like December, January, and February right. are going to be Dark, god-awful. Right. Uh, your take on that? Well, I agree. I mean, it's easy, relatively easy to predict what the virus is going to do. Human behavior is the variable. You know, every person in public health has said pretty much the same thing for most of 2020. Uh, you know, in July, I had an op-ed in The Times in which I was saying, if we don't change our behavior, and I was quoting a model that was projecting 150,000 cases a day around this period. And of course, right now, 150,000 almost looks good. Um, The reality is there's, you know, we can intervene almost at any point 
along the path and change the direction. Whether we will do that remains to be seen. Uh, there is a certain amount of self-correcting as cases mount and deaths mount, then people do behave better. Uh, you know, here in New Orleans, when we talked before, many months ago, it was pretty unusual to see people wearing masks. Now I walk around the streets and, and see most, the vast majority of people. Not quite the same. I was in Northwest Washington uh, at the yeah. Starbucks you and I go to, and everybody around there uh, was wearing masks. It's not quite yeah. at that level down here. But masks are not really the key. They are a key, not the key. The most important thing remains social distancing. That is number one, two, and three. Masks, I think, are second. James. So on, on March the 22nd, this is from your colleague, Dr. Jerry, at the Tulane Public Health School, who I think was instrumental in developing the Ebola vaccine. He says he was optimistic. He said, you're right, this only ends with good vaccine. Six months with perfect luck, optimistic. What, what, why was he so optimistic on March 22nd about developing a vaccine fast? What, what did they know then? Well, they knew, uh, you know, the genetic sequence of the virus had been out there, I guess, on January 9th or 10th. Uh, within a couple of days, uh, the spike protein, which the immune system recognizes, uh, the Moderna, and it was working on a vaccine based on that spike protein. Uh, you know, Pfizer, at the, you know, everywhere around the world, uh, that I protein was identified. It also was recognized pretty early that it seemed to be pretty stable. Unlike influenza, the antigen that the influenza vaccine targets mutates very, very rapidly. Uh, this virus is much more stable. The spike protein is, you know, since the target that the vaccine is aiming at stays the same, then you have a pretty good chance of hitting it. When it's a moving target, it's a different situation. So knowing that that technology, the messenger RNA technology, had been developed over a period of time, uh, used for an Ebola vaccine, then it's a relatively simple process to stick a different protein into that platform. Uh, it's almost, you know, a, a click and play type situation. So you still have to test it. You don't know for certain for certainty that it will work, but you have every reason to believe that it will work. And fortunately, it looks like it has worked better than anticipated. Nobody expected 95% efficacy and very importantly, efficacy in the older population whose immune systems generally are weaker than younger people. So, so John Barry, the eminent historian of the 1918-1919 pandemic, who says the number one lesson that was to be learned was to tell the truth. All right, somebody asks you, do you have any trepidation whatsoever about being vaccinated? None. <laughs> 
Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the instant that uh, my wife and I are allowed to get it, I am getting it. Well, John, I want to warn you. I interrupt just for a second. If you're getting in New Orleans, you're going to have to elbow out James. And if you're yeah, getting Northwest get Washington, you're yeah. going to have to elbow out me. So I just want to put you on notice, okay? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, James. I'm sorry. So, so one of the ideas, the problem is not to get Al Hunt and John Barry and James Carville, our wives, you know, vaccinated. It's to get resistant populations vaccinated. And one of the ideas that somebody has come up with that I think is worthy of exploitation is give people a lottery ticket. You know, there's tons of research that says if you give people a chance between a $10 lottery ticket and a $10 bill, they'll take the lottery ticket. Maybe the federal government should have a $500 million lottery. I, I don't know. It's, it's got to be a way that, because if you look at the surveys, there's a large resistant population in this country. And I, well, I know we're going to have different, you know, athletes and, you know, entertainers and country music people and presidents and everything like this. But we've got to figure a PR way to break through here. Well, I agree with and your idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an all of the above situation. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly any way to get people to take it. And the lottery is probably a pretty good idea. So I would certainly support that. You got to try something. Go ahead, Albert. Yeah. Yeah. John, does the administration deserve any credit for the vaccine development? Well, yes and no. I mean, the idea came out of the uh, FDA, uh, didn't originate in the White House. It was kind of obvious. Uh, other countries around the world working on vaccines have done similar things. On the other hand, the White House could have said, no, we're not spending the money. Uh, for those who don't understand, I think probably everybody who listens to you does understand, but may as well say it for those who don't. The reason it moves so quickly is that there were financial guarantees that companies that produce the vaccine would get paid even if the vaccine didn't work. Right. So instead of waiting to prove that it worked and then starting the production process, they started producing it immediately. So we already have stockpiles. Um, you know, the White House might have vetoed it, the, the, the expenditure of that money. Uh, it would have been stupid, but they could have. So, yeah, I, I would say they deserve some credit. Uh, I think it was ten billion dollars. Yeah, it was a significant amount of money. Yeah, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't cheap. Now the the Pfizer vaccine did not was not part of this, but Correct. the Moderna was. And a, a friend of ours, high respect, Roger Altman, said that Moderna could not have done this without the guarantee. They weren't a big enough. They weren't a big enough company. That's correct. Pfizer, Pfizer you know, could afford to do it, and you know there are plenty of mm -hmm. other companies that are. Uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson, a uh, very large, very capable company. Uh, they're coming online pretty soon, I would think. Uh, a tiny company called Novavax, uh, they could, no way could they have done anything without uh, support from the administration and from uh, what's called SEPI Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness or something. Uh, based in London, which is 
and some other international financing. And CEPI happens to be run by a friend of mine named Richard Hatchett, who used to run uh, BARDA in the United States. That's the Biological Advanced Research Development Agency or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he's a state of Mississippi boy, Delta. Uh, and, you know, internationally, there was a lot of support for this as well. You know, as we learn, Pfizer offered its more supplies to the administration, uh, but they declined. So now the, the, those vaccine supplies are going to other countries that did purchase them. Uh, you know, there is plenty of opportunity for slip-ups in the distribution of this stuff. But right now, everybody seems to be optimistic. And, you know, this has been remarkable how well this, this has gone. Am I correct? John, let me... Go ahead, James. Uh, just, I, I read that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a one-shot as opposed correct. to the other ones. Correct. That, that, that would be huge, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. Also, it's yeah. easier to store and transport. And, and when do we think we're going to know the efficacy of this is? Are we pretty late in the trials, or as, as best you can tell? Um, you know, they're well into the trials. I don't know the exact dates when they expect to uh, report. Right, right. But it, it's John, underway. Oh, yeah. John, they're well into couple- their phase three trials. Let me do a couple things that you you know probably better than anyone. Why? And I just don't understand this. Why was it? I believe I'm right that the 1918 uh, influenza primarily affected people under 65, and this one primarily affects people over 65. Do we know why? Well, the hypothesis on 1918 is that people's immune systems overreacted. And younger people have stronger immune systems than older people. Right. Uh, and, you know, that, they, you know, the battlefield for the, was in the lung. The virus, uh, the immune system threw every th- weapon it had at the virus and wiped out the lungs in the process and also allowed uh, this secondary bacterial invaders, which probably killed a majority of people, bacterial pneumonias. Even today, bacterial pneumonia following influenza has an 8% case fatality rate. Back then, it was 25 to 30%. Uh, yeah. And ironically, today, younger people's immune system seems capable of fighting off the virus. Older people's immune systems don't do as well in fighting off the virus, and yet it's still strong enough to wreak havoc inside the lung. Uh, that accounts for the people who go into what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, A-R-D-S. Uh, right. It's called a cytokine storm. Uh, cytokines are, are, you know, messengers, are, are, are the toxins that uh, the immune system releases to attack various things. Probably the most toxic is called tumor necrosis factor, but there are various interleukins. Uh, you know, and there is an irony there. Um, that's not, that's a hypothesis. That's not absolutely established. There is a theory that there's a different pathway physiologically that's doing the damage in the lungs. Uh, Yeah. Then of course, one of the similarities between the two viruses 
And they are very different. They're, you know, no mistake, there's difference. But the 1918 virus seemed to infect pretty much every organ, quite literally from the testes to the brain. And this virus is also doing that. You know, kidneys, liver, you know, cardiovascular system, neurological impacts. Uh, wow. Those things were true in 1918 and they're true today. Let me just say one way, you know, as, as, as ecstatic as we are about the, the, the very promising prospects of vaccines down the road, three, four, six months, this still, there are going to be after effects. We're not going to go back next July to the status quo ante, are we? I mean, this is still, you know, it'll be much better. We'll be able to do things. We'll be able to go out. But, but, but there are after effects from this, aren't there? Well, you know, there is. I, I think if the vaccine gets widely distributed, I mean, it holds at the 90, 95% level of efficacy. I think we will go back to a pre-pandemic normal sooner and closer to, the, to that normal than anybody would have expected before we got the results on the vaccines. Having said that, so- having said that, you know, going back to what I said a minute ago about the 1918 virus uh, infecting other organs besides the lung, and this one doing the same thing, uh, I actually been in the process of drafting another op-ed, which I haven't finished yet, and I may or may not submit. But, you know, give you an example, in Cincinnati in 1919, the public health agency examined 7,000 influenza victims and found 5,200 of them needed medical assistance months after the pandemic. That even without modern scans or blood, you know, the, uh, you know, analyzing the blood chemistry, they found 643 out of those 7,000 had heart problems. Uh, in addition, wow. an extraordinary number of influenza uh, survivors were dying in 1919. So wow. we're, we're, you know, the 1918 virus was much, much more virulent than this virus. However, this virus is more transmissible and, and of course, in raw numbers, it's infecting, uh, you know, just tens of millions of people. And will continue to do so for months. Wow. Uh, so I think there may be, and we already know there's so-called long COVID for a minority of people have a great difficulty recovering uh, fully uh, quite a while, certainly months after uh, they were infected. So I have uh, considerable concern that we're going to see a similar after effects uh, that will linger, you know, in the next months or even years. I mean, it, you know, for, as I said, I started to draft this op-ed and I quote Robert Frost, who, who uh, months after he recovered, supposedly recovered, he wrote, what bones are they that rub together so unpleasantly in the middle of you in extreme emaciation? Here it is as late as this. And I don't know whether or not I'm strong enough to write a letter yet. And then wow. in 1923, John Dewey's writing, 
It may be doubted if the consciousness of sickness was ever so widespread as it is today. The interest in cures and salvations is evidence of how sick the world is. You know, so there was a this real impact that lingered. Now, it's not clear whether we'll be seeing something like that, but it is a concern. Uh, you know, the vast majority of people are probably going to recover very well, but we do know that there is measurable damage in the lungs and hearts and probably in other organs. Uh, not being a scientist, I can say probably <laughs> without actual data, uh, but we do have data on heart and lungs. Uh, and it's not clear whether people are going to heal completely uh, or whether they will, their lives will be affected in the future. Uh, wow. James, so wrap it up I, with a great I, John Barry. Everybody knows that John Barry is the greatest public health historian in, in the country, maybe the world. What other people may not know is not only is he a football fan, he was a college football coach and was an assistant coach at Tulane in 1973 when they beat LSU for the first time since 1948. So, Johnny, just from a public health standpoint and a, and a knowledgeable sports fan, how do you think the sports leagues have handled this? Should they be playing you know, Mike Krzyzewski is now saying this is crazy to be trying to be playing college basketball. When the John Barry of the future has the chapter on sports in this pandemic, what do you think the conclusion is going to be? Well, first, thanks for what you said about me. It's, well, it was true. I, 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 just, I, I just said the truth. <laughs> I know. Okay. Basketball, that's if you could put these people in bubbles like the NBA did, obviously the NBA was very successful doing that. College basketball, it's tougher. And then you have the ethical issues of all these college athletes being tested several times a week when, and getting test results back practically instantly. Uh, and the general population doesn't have that ability. So you do have that ethical issue. Uh, I was surprised the football season has gone as well as it's gone. Uh, we just learned Michigan's canceling its game and not playing Ohio State. So uh, Ohio State may not be able to play in the Big Ten championship game. So it affects college football players, blah, blah, blah. You know, I have very mixed emotions on that. You know, I think basketball is a little bit tougher than football. In that regard, because of the intimacy of the contact, uh, and I applaud Shashevsky for raising those issues. You know, and this is you know I've sounded like a politician punting uh, the answer by you know almost filibustering. Uh, I don't know my personal opinion. I like to watch sports. Um, you know, there, but there are a lot of questions in there. I thought that it was crazy yeah. to go forward with the football season um, and said so early in the football season. But it, it worked better than I would have expected. Basketball's tougher, though. Well, yeah. No, I, I share your feelings. I, I can't, you know, I watched the Duke-Illinois game last night. I, I love watching, but boy, it, it and 
you're right, football's going better, but, you know, Ohio State's having some problems understanding that. And I went to Wake Forest. They've canceled, you know, their last three games. Uh, you know, when I, I, these playoffs scare me, so I don't know. John Barry, you are the definitive expert, uh, as James said, on the history of this. You have been a great guest. You were a great guest eight months ago. Uh, we're going to have you back as we go through this uh, in the uh, late winter and spring of 2021. Thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks a million, man. Thanks Thank a million. You. You're, a great, you're a very great American, a really great American. <laughs> you guys are, too. I mean, Thank you. I appreciate that. Terrific. All right, James, we did good. I want you to be safe this week. Uh, and we'll be back with another good show next week, I promise. Absolutely. Love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 